We talk um, on occasion about the calendars uh, in this pulpit, and you've already heard me refer to them in our, in our opening of our service today. Fascinating time on those calendars. So the annual calendar, summer's coming, as the near 90-degree temperatures today uh, attest. Um, the school calendar is winding down, and graduation is soon upon us. And the church calendar also intersects with all this, because today, as I've already told you, is Pentecost Sunday. It's a great time to have a calendar. But as important as these three calendars are in our culture, for the Christian, there's an even more important way, uh, the ultimate way, of reckoning time. It's not by the watches that we wear or the, or the, the, the iPads that we carry or the calendars that are on our desks. Christians live in light of the day of the Lord. More than any other day on any calendar, the day that marks us is the day of the Lord, the day of the return of our Savior, a glorious truth that is deeply rooted in the Old Testament, particularly the prophets. You heard me read from Joel a little bit earlier this morning. Joel's primary theme is the day of the Lord, and it carries on into and informs all of the New Testament, which is another way of saying the day of the Lord informs all of our living. Now let me ask you, how many of you this week did anything in light of the day of the Lord? It's a good question. Today's passage, Romans 13, as you just heard Brother Nader read for us, the apostle is going to close this major section that began in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, a section about living our lives, as I've said, in light of the mercies of God. And now, with 13, 14, is going to close up this section before he opens up the one last major section in the book. And he does so, I dare say, with a thrilling sense of urgency. I couldn't help but think that I was in the midst of a Jason Bourne movie while I was preparing this sermon this week. You know, I'm waiting for a little ticker tape to come across the screen right here right now, like Berlin, you know, Amsterdam, Staten Island. There's a sense of urgency, an exciting, a thrilling sense of urgency, way more thrilling than a Jason Bourne movie, as great as those are. Here's how, here's how it unfolds this morning, and I'm not being cute, I don't try to alliterate, but it's right here in front of us here this day. Three simple truths for us. There's an urgent reality, and then there's an urgent reason for that reality, and then there are three urgent responses. Okay, so there's an urgent reality, there's an urgent re reason, and then there's an urgent three urgent responses that are going to take place in 11, 12, 13, and 14. Watch how this unfolds. We'll take this in two parts. Next week, if the good Lord's willing, and you'll see this near the end, just too much to do in one sermon. So near the end, I will signal to you, this is where we'll be next week, and we'll finish this section up. But let's look first at the urgent reality in Romans chapter 13 and beginning in verse 11. More than one writer has said of Paul that in order to truly understand him, and I think they're right, that in order to truly understand Paul, you must understand his, here's a 25-cent theological word for you today, his eschatology, his understanding of the end. You cannot understand Paul, and I'll go so far as to say, you cannot understand the New Testament 
if you do not understand the vision that every single New Testament writer, no exceptions, every single New Testament writer has. They write their letters, they address situations in the congregation relative to the end. You can find it in everyone's writings in the New Testament. And so if we don't have that mindset, we run the risk of not really understanding what the message is all about. We'll get caught up in the here and now, we'll be overwhelmed by the problems of life that consume us, if we don't have an understanding of what the end looks like. His all-encompassing vision of life lived in the light of the return of Jesus and the final judgment of God. At the end of the day, that's how you and I live. We live in light of the return of Jesus. Well, let me say that's the way that we should live. Many Christians don't give much evidence that they want Jesus to come back anytime soon. Romans 13, 11 to 14 is Paul's most succinct teaching on the topic of living in the end times, if you please. Verse 11, the first half of verse 11, besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. It's a stunning opening statement to this little section right here, and it really is a summary of what's gone on in 12 and 13. He's, he's kind of winding this down. He's going he's to come full stop, and then he's going to finish the weak and the strong conversation in, 14, in chapters 14 and 15. But here right now, it's kind of a wrap-up, and this wrap-up is all swung around the time and the hour. If you're an underliner, if you're a highlighter or a circler, you want to underline the time and you want to underline the hour because you and I hear those words like, oh, what time is it? Oh, what, what's the hour and so forth? Well, that's all well and good, but that's not how Paul's using these, this, these words here. This is code, if you please, for the time, for the hour. And you and I, as much as the first century saints did, we live in the hour. This is the final hour. It's an era. It's a period of time that's not simply first century. That's not simply 1130 on May so-and-so in the year of our Lord. It's an era. And that's, that's part of the challenge that we need to understand with regard to Paul's thinking. The New American Standard says, do this knowing the time. See, it's a little funky because there's no verb there in the front. So you've you got to figure it out. You've got to figure out what to do. And so the, the translations help us with this. ESV says, besides this, you know the time. NASB says, do this knowing the time. They have to supply that because it just simply says, the time. This, the time, that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. Now, you, it begs the question. I mean, I, it seems to me, I mean, some, sometimes I have to really strain over getting certain words on the page. Then there are other times it just, I just, I'm reading and just flows right from this. Because the immediate question is, why does he have to say this to them? Why does he have to say, wake up from your sleep? He doesn't give us a whole lot of information, although I do think we'll begin to see a little bit more of this in, in Romans 14 and 15. Why is Paul telling them, and by extension us, this? Who's in this room right now that's sleeping, slumbering, living a lifestyle that's sliding away from the Lord rather than toward him? Are they, were they, are we slumbering? Are we falling asleep at the switch? Oh, it's been 2,000 years now. He hasn't returned. Let's eat, drink, and be merry because, you know, it might be another 2,000 years. That's the danger when with the Lord, a thousand years is like a day, and a day like a thousand years. 
It's a different way of marking time. Have they, have we become slack in our lifestyle? Are, are, are we conforming to the pattern of this age? Is that what Paul's doing? Is, it, is Paul rattling their cage a little bit? They say, hey, hey, now's the time for you to wake up. Wake up from your slumber. You're too much like the world. You're conforming to the pattern of this age. Are you, are you not living in expectation of the return of Jesus? It's a sobering question. It really is. The time, the hour, Paul's way of telling us that the new creation has begun. There are fewer things that come out of my mouth when I'm preaching than a sentence like that that just thrill me. Because I, I struggle so much to understand it and to live it. But let me say it again. Paul's use of the time and the hour, it's his way of telling us that the new creation has begun. Sit with that, would you please? Humor me. Write a note. Set aside some time this past week and just repeat to yourself, I am living in an age that has begun and will be fulfilled when Jesus comes back. And we need to be intentional about this because otherwise the forces of the culture will just take you right along. And it's so much, you've heard me use different metaphors, it's like the goldfish in the bowl, asking the goldfish to describe water. You know, the goldfish looks at you and says, w -w -w you know, it's like me looking at you and saying, describe to me the culture of Staten Island. You look at me and like, what do you mean? What do you mean? It just, it just is what it is. And that's the exact wrong answer. Because as Christians, we need to be differentiating. We need to ask ourselves, okay, what is life going to be like in the new creation? Because now we are to be modeling that. How then does that call into question the pattern of this age? How do you think about relationships? How do you think about work? How do you think about money? How do you think about, and there's nothing there that won't go in that blank if we're taking seriously the idea that the new creation has begun. I can't tell you the number of times over the years in counseling situations where I've heard people share testimonies of, of them leaving. They're, they're leaving because their job is taking them to a different place. I'm moving because we can't afford housing here. All kinds of legitimate reasons for people to move. I can count on uh, some 25 odd years now in ministry. I can literally count maybe one hand. I might need two hands to count people having the category of we have to move, but I'm not going there because there's no church there. I'm not taking that job because I can't find a church there. When, when people come into my office and do things like that, I sit up and pay attention. Because I want to be around that person because that person is, is, is getting it. I'm going because I want a bigger house or a cheaper house. I'm going because I've got a better job. I'm going because I'm going because I'm going because that's where the church is. And then I'll figure out the rest of my life around that. Paul, Paul's way of telling it is that the new creation has begun. We are presently living in this hour. And this does nothing but echo the teachings of Jesus here, where in 
one of the most famous passages in the Bible, Mark chapter 13. It's often referred to as the little apocalypse. Mark chapter 13, Jesus says this. Now tell me whether or not Paul had this streaming in his mind. Mark 13, beginning in verse 32. But concerning that day or that hour, see the words? That day, that hour. No one knows, not even the angels in heaven. This is Mark 13, 32. Nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard. Keep awake. Same language. For you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home, puts the servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Stay awake. Now, Jesus is not literally saying, don't go to bed tonight. No, 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 no. Th those two words are much more pregnant than, hey, you don't need sleep. Stay awake. Stay alert. Are you waiting for him to come? Are you praying to him and asking him for guidance in your decision-making based on the fact that Jesus is coming back? The Spirit has come. New creation has dawned. The hour has come for us to wake from sleep. David Brainerd is one of my heroes. He's one of my heroes due in part to the fact that he's tied to Jonathan Edwards. David Brainerd died, 29 years old, a man who suffered with depression the better part of his life, come out of a massively depressive family. He was an 18th century missionary to the Native Americans in Massachusetts. That might be another reason why I like him. One of his most famous lines is this. Let me urge you to write it down, because it's not a bad banner to put on the bathroom mirror or the refrigerator or the car dashboard. Brainerd said, 29 years old now when he died, may I never loiter on my heavenly journey. That's good stuff. That's good stuff. You get a young man burning for the Lord like that. I said, Lord, I want that. And I want that for you. I want that for the people of God. May I never loiter on my heavenly journey. The hours come for you to wake from your sleep. So here's the reason. If that's the reality, here's the reason he gives that. Just, just read on with me. It's just the, the next half of a verse, really. Paul roots this urgent reality in an urgent reason. Besides this, you know the time, the hours come for you to wake from, salvate, from, uh, from sleep. And then you see the word for, that, that basically says because, for, this is the reason for, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. That's, that's the reason why Paul is urgent with that reality with regard to wake up. Why? Why should I not kick back and take another hour's snooze? Well, because your salvation is nearer today than it was the day you first believed. I and mean, we say that. It kind of rolls off of our mouths as Christians. And that's a good thing. Anytime the Bible rolls off your mouth, that's a good thing. I've heard countless people say this over the years. I've said it countless times as well. Salvation, I'm one step closer today. I, I woke up this morning and all my body parts were still attached, which is a good thing for me. And I try to keep these things in my mind. I'm a step closer, John. I'm one day closer. Salvation is nearer 
to us than when we first believed. This is the grounding. This is the reason why Paul is saying, wake up from your slumber, because your salvation is right around the corner. And you just heard me read one of many passages that I could have read from the mouth of Jesus that just said, don't get caught carousing when the Son of Man returns. Stay alert. Stay awake. Stay on your toes. If you're in the middle of a good night's sleep, that's fine. But if you're off doing this and you're off doing that and you're conforming to the pattern of this age, be concerned. That means you're sleeping, you're slumbering, your lifestyle is not consistent with your proclamation. That's what staying awake means. Salvation is nearer to us than when we first believed. That, that might strike you as odd because it, it speaks of salvation as future. Well, I thought I was already saved. Well, listen to what the Bible teaches us. The Bible teaches us that our salvation is past. Ephesians 2.8, you have been saved through faith. The Bible also teaches us that we're being saved. 1 Corinthians 1.18, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And now here, in 13.11, as well as Romans 5.9, we're taught that our salvation is future. Salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. It's this, it's this much larger reality than I prayed the sinner's prayer and I'm saved. Well, you are being saved. You will be saved. Can I have eternal security? You absolutely can. That's another set of sermons. But language like this keeps us on our toes. We prove our salvation by being awake and not slumbering. With unpanicked urgency. Those words came to me, and I thank you, Lord. I just love those two words, because I need unpanicked. I hear urgency. My whole life is urgency. Nothing, nothing is not urgent in my life right now. And so this is, this is the way that I live right now. And so when I'm writing, and this comes to me yesterday in the stillness of my office, and it says, unpacked, uh, unpanicked urgency. I literally sat back in my seat, and I went, urgent, but not panicking. It's an urgency, but not panic. And a lot of my childhood athletics and early adulthood coaching came back to my mind because I used to, I was trained and I used to train others. Be quick. Be quick. But be slow. What, what do you mean by that? It just present, presented this wonderful teaching opportunity. With unpanicked urgency, our gracious God who's begun a good work in us and has promised to bring this good work to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. You see the day? He's begun a good work in you, Philippians 1.6. He has promised to bring it to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. Reminds us that with each passing day, you and I are much closer to meeting our Savior. And especially those of you with the crowns of wisdom, gray hair, which Proverbs speaks so highly of, all the more you ought to give thought to, is today the day? And you don't have to be old to be thinking about this, you know? I've got a young cousin. I've got a young cousin who just had a brain tumor removed from the back of his head. He's been told he's got two to four years to live. He's in his 40s. 
Are you ready? Are you awake? Or are you, are you fiddling? Has this urgent reason gripped you? Does it shape your decisions? Paul adds vivid words in the very next verse. The night is gone. The day is at hand. I, just, I love those words because they're so brief and they just say so much. Paul says vividly in a staccato-like fashion after explaining some of these things. He says, saints, he said, the night is gone. You're day people. The day, capital D, day has come. And if you're in Christ, you are no longer of the night. You are of the day. Isn't that fantastic? Isn't that a fantastic way to think about it? You and I are people of the day. We live in the light. The night is behind us. It's no longer in the dark. Paul says to the Ephesians in Ephesians 5.8, he says, at one time you were darkness. Not in darkness, you were darkness. My gosh, is there a sobering word there? You were darkness. If you're listening to me on Streamland or you're in this room right now and you have not repented of your sin and come to a saving knowledge of the gracious Savior named Jesus Christ, you are darkness. You're not only in darkness, you are darkness. That's what the Bible says. And though you may think you see the light and though you may think that you reason well, it's end game. See, here's the end again. It's end game is darkness. The only way that that darkness gets pierced is if you come in repentance and faith to the effectual call of God in your life and accept the finished work of Jesus Christ. He and he alone is the one who can transform you out of the kingdom of darkness and move you into the kingdom of light by the power of his spirit. At one time you were darkness, but now, I love those words, but now, and we can do this, church, but now, no longer darkness, no longer in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. You're not in the light, you are light in the Lord. Isn't that powerful? Ephesians 5, you are no longer darkness, you are now light, but there's that prepositional phrase, in the Lord. All glory to Jesus. Because there's no light in me. Any light that you see emanating from me is because of Jesus. It is Jesus. Well, say that to one another. Encourage one another. You brighten my day. You're such an encourager. I'm glad to see Jesus in you. Jesus is encouraging me through you. But now, today, see how it all ties together? The hour, but now. The era has changed, but now. But now you are the light of the Lord, so walk as children of the light. Walk. We talk about it all the time. You are light in Jesus, now walk. Don't walk thinking you could become the light in Jesus. 
that loses the entirety of the gospel. You are light in Jesus, now walk in the light. You see how that works? Not in some construction of walking in the light, this is going to impress God so I can become a child of light. That's a false gospel in one verse. It's all over the place. So how? How do we walk as children of the light? Here's the third point. Three urgent responses. This is where I'm going to basically outline it for you, and then I'm going to leave it here, because this is where, God willing, we will come back and finish next Sunday on these three urgent responses to the urgent reality grounded in the urgent reason that Paul has given to us. And this is the back end of verse 13 and verse 14. So he's rooted in urgent reality in an urgent reason, and now he calls us to urgent responses. And notice what he does. He juxtaposes the day and the night three times to three urgent days. So here's first, 12, the second half of verse 12. So then, see the so then? Okay, so this is now what you're going to do. Haven't been awakened because your salvation is near. Now, let's get to work. Let's get to work. First, so then, let us cast off the works of darkness. See, that's the night. And instead, put on the armor of light. That's the day. See how that works? The night, cast off the works of darkness. The day, put on the armor of light. We'll unpack that, God willing, next week. Secondly, verse 13, let us walk properly as in the daytime. See, there's the light. Now the night, not in, not in, not in. Three times. Not in, orgies and drunkenness. Not in, sexual immorality and sensuality. New American Standard says debauchery. What a gross word. Not in, third time, quarreling and jealousy. So you, you mirror read that, you read that back, and you think, what in the world is going on in first century Rome? That Paul's going to speak to the church in that kind of language. I, I like to be cute every once in a while and say, I'm so glad the 21st century church doesn't have to worry about stuff like that anymore. And this is what usually happens. Everybody in the room laughs. Because you know. Because you know. Let us walk properly as in daytime. Not in orgies and drunkenness. One, one, writer, descri one writer describes first century Rome as, as a frat party in Las Vegas overseen by Caligula. Like I said, I'm so glad that was first century and nothing around here anymore like that today. Not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in orgies, orgies and drunkenness. Notice also, he's going on with this debauchery. He's going on with this sex debauched category. And then, and then, he, and then he says, and quarreling and jealousy. It's stunning. It's stunning because we good conservative Christians, yeah, you let them have it on sexual immorality. You let them, you go, you go. And then, and then oh, and quarreling and jealousy. Like, whoa, 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 whoa. Whoa. Really? See, what this says, and I'll unpack this more next week. See, what this says is that we've got to be very, very careful about elevating sexual sins as though they were the unpardonable sins. Because Paul, in the same sentence, is going to put quarreling and jealousy right together with sexual debauchery. So let's, let's be careful. And I'm speaking to myself now here twice, 
Let's be careful about getting up too high on our horse, thinking that I don't have to worry about that because I'm not sexually debauched, and then zip right past the, the complaining and the gossiping and the jealous and the jealousy. Paul's after the heart, and so's God. We'll talk more about that, God willing, next week, and now nobody's going to come back. <laughs> Third, last, but, 14, verse 14, but, but, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's probably going to be the sermon title, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. I love that phrase. I, I love that phrase. Write that down. Take that home. Say to yourself five times a day, I'm putting on the Lord Jesus Christ. Like taking your vitamin in the morning, I'm putting on the Lord Jesus Christ. What does it mean? What does it mean? It's, it's a clothing. It's a, it's a clothing metaphor, obviously. You're, you're going to go in your closet when you wake up tomorrow morning before you go off to work, and you're going to take off the hook, off the rack, Jesus Christ. And put it on. Here we go. Me and Jesus. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ. There's the day. Make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. There's the night. And that's your sermon outline, God willing, for next week. I have yet, I have yet to meet a person, literally, this is literally true, I've yet to meet a person who has ever said to me, I love my alarm clock. Never met a person yet who said, I love my alarm clock. I love when my alarm clock goes off makes me spry and want to jump out of bed and get ready for the day. I can't tell you the number of people who have smashed their alarm clocks, who have told me that they've set the Guinness Book of World Records for poking the snooze button a thousand and two times. I've never met the person who's ever said I love my alarm clock, but alarm clocks are important. Especially if they, pre if they prevent you from missing an important event. You get that? Alarm clocks are important, especially if they prevent you from missing an important event. L let's just call this passage God's urgent yet gracious eschatological alarm clock. And let's just agree together if you lean in carefully, you can hear it buzzing. God's alarm clock is given to you for good purposes. He does not want you to miss this supremely important event, namely the return of his son, Jesus. The hour has come for you, for us, to wake from our sleep. Let's pray. What a word for which we thank you, O oh God. And we want to be sure that we keep that big picture in front of us because it really informs all of what Paul taught. This is we do not conform to the pattern of this age because Jesus is coming back. We want to be transformed by the renewing of our minds because Jesus is coming back. 
We want to cast aside the deeds of darkness because Jesus is coming back. We want to put on Jesus. We want to put on Jesus because Jesus is coming back. Let it be, O oh Lord, that there's not a person in the room or a person in streamland that hits the snooze button right now. Please. But let us hear that alarm and let us so act. Not smashing the clock, but sitting up and putting our feet on the floor and say, praise be to God. He's graciously warning me not to fall asleep because I'm closer. I'm one day closer. And one day we'll see Jesus Christ face to face. May that be a day of great joy for each and every one of you. We pray it in his name alone. Amen. Amen.